Preparation was good, you know. I thought that's your specialty. Thank you. Thank you. Cause if I said that one, it would sound like bragging. Obviously, good quickness. Yeah, in and out, pretty fast. Real fast. Including the coin collection and the earrings. You took the earrings, Dignan. I bought the earrings for my mother on her birthday. Maybe we should have robbed your house. You ever think of that? Three outstanding young men. All they ever wanted was to be wanted. What are you putting that tape on your nose for? Exactly. Excuse me. Are the explosives really necessary? Welcome back to another episode of Whose Filmography Is It Anyway? This week, we start our Wes Anderson deep dive. After 10 weeks of Nolan, we finally made it through Nolan's black hole into Wes Anderson's colorful world. Here with me, as always, is my co-hosted friend, Josh Page. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you for a lovely introduction. That was really, those were really kind words you just said. Um, Stephen, I, I got to be honest with you. Making this leap, I, I need to be sensitive out there. But if I, because you know, I, I don't have much experience. It's almost like being uh, in a rehab, like coming out of a like an addiction of sorts. Um, got hooked on the Nolan man. You know, just feeling like it was so good, and the more you're doing it, you're like, I love it so much, but I kind of just want, you know. I, no, that was the Stockholm syndrome kicking in. Need this experience to just. And it's only because I just, it's, I'm so invested in it. You know, you would think it would be a huge leap from Nolan to Wes Anderson. But Wes Anderson's first movie, Bottle Rocket, is literally just a different telling of following. That is actually a very astute uh, observation. There's, and... like, you cannot tell me Nolan did not watch Bottle Rocket and was like, this guy's got some formula I can take a look here. This sounds like a conspiracy theory. I'm not going to call it fake news, but a conspiracy theory that I could get behind. I'm telling you, man. I, I'm not saying it's identical, but uh, breaking and entering and uh, stealing an earring, you know? The movie is all... Oh, yeah. Wow. You're really just selling your argument here, Stephen. I really, I'm floored right now. I think it's time to get into Wes Anderson. Tell me. What was your first experience with Wes Anderson? I remember my family renting uh, Royal Tenenbaums on DVD from like a blockbuster or wherever, if you will, um, right when it had come out because um, they had heard it was a comedy. They knew like Ben Stiller and certain people were in it. And I remember sitting around watching it with my family. <laughs> oh boy. And my... Um, they're just used to more slapstick. They, you know, pre they prefer, uh, you know, like Adam Sandler movies. And like, there's, you know, they have their own unique style of, of comedy that they like. Yeah, so Ben Stiller was this, literally Zoolander the year before. Which is absolutely bananas. Um, and they, I just remember watching this movie, like 40 minutes had gone by and not a chuckle. And it was kind of one of these things where I don't know who said it first in my family being like, this movie's not funny. And it was kind of one of these things where I don't know if we had turned it off early 
or some of them left. And I remember feeling like it was a quirky kind of experience that I really admired, but I was immediately admiring it more as like, um, just more of a genuine film than what would be labeled as billed as a comedy. And that's the whole conversation about what is comedy mean to people. This is a very specific brand of humor. So it's, um, that was the earliest memory I have of Wes. It wasn't until I got to college and started learning more uh, about him. And of course, college kids about. love him. Uh, love him. Arguably, you know, more so than most. Yeah, I feel like in recent years, Wes Anderson has kind of overtaken the spot that like Quentin Tarantino used to hold of the consensus uh, filmmaker. You know, like it used to be Tarantino and Wes Anderson like took over. Maybe because um, his movies are more artsy. Maybe because his movies are more, I don't know, quirky. Well, and we entered a more yeah. quirky environment. I don't know. Well, Tarantino has also graduated to like a level where he's recognized in a totally different platform than, you know, he was when I was in college. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. I mean, I guess like by the time like Inglorious Bastards and Django and, and them came out, he had started getting nominated for Oscars. Well, he so, won an Oscar for Pulp Fiction. Right. And I feel like after that, it was kind of this like rocky road of like, don't know if kill bill the kill bills were nominated for anything so it's kind of like i don't know there was a lot of this back and forth i feel like and it wasn't until those the, these later years where like even the critics and not just and not just critics but like fans everywhere people everywhere started knowing his name you know i also feel like college kids today and maybe i'm wrong i don't know maybe i'm just an old crotchety man i don't know but i feel like these young kids today don't like violence as much as they used to um, if you're trying to imply that it's a, it's a more sensitive time yeah. and, uh, that's exactly what I'm saying. And, and, and people not, are a little, taken I'm not back. saying Wes Anderson doesn't make gritty stuff. Cause there's like some gritty stuff in here, but his movies have more of a, uh, quirky nature where Tarantino's is more of like, I'm going to pull your eyeball out of your socket with my it's way more hand. explicit. Yeah. 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 And then show a shot of a barefoot stepping on said eyeball. <laughs> Uh, but tell first, me yours, yes, your yeah. your first experience. Of, My uh, first uh, experience was uh, back in my young in days in high school. I was just back in my day. It was it was later than when you watched Royal Tenenbaums because you had to have been young. I don't yeah know the math, but I I don't know. My first experience was not that young. My first experience was actually with. Um, Fantastic Mr. Fox. It I saw it on TV around 2009, and I was like, "This is a interesting animated movie right now." Like, I yeah. have you know, it's just very different than the animated movies that we get today. And that's my first experience with Wes Anderson. So I was like, "This movie is shot in a completely different way too. It's so stylistic." It's cool, you know, yeah. I looked up the director and saw that he did live action movies because, like, again, this is, <laughs> I didn't really know much. And I right, no, went back and I watched a couple more of his movies. I watched, uh, I think the first one I watched after was The Royal Tenenbaums because it was also on TV. Next, I used to have the DVR and my TV guide website. <laughs> Those were the days. Those were the days. So Royal Tenenbaums was just playing and I watched it and I was like, 
what's going on? Because the first time I also didn't get it. I'm like, did this guy just fuck his sister? <laughs> but then, hey, you know, a couple years later, we get to Game of Thrones. And I'm just like, okay, I guess uh, it's fine now. I guess we've accepted this. Um, uh, but it, it, I will say it's kind of awkward. Wes Anderson's kind of awkward at first because I, for years, didn't, like after that Royal Tenenbaum's experience, I kind of like went along with my family, not knowing like, just like, oh yeah, he's not really, his movies are supposed to be comedies and indie, but they're not funny and they're not whatever. And I was very ignorant. And for years, I kind of just labeled him as this hipster filmmaker who, from what I knew of him, was a certain, made movies a certain way that didn't cater to me at all. And all of a sudden, like it finally like, I can't explain it. Like it hit me and I was like, oh wait, never mind. Now I understand what his movies are and they're totally different. So I can see the first experience, like, it's kind of, like, it's strange, it's awkward, it's kind of uncomfortable. Yeah, exactly. And uh, let's switch over to his biography here. Yeah, absolutely. Don't have much, but born in May 1969, he's 51 now, Uh, born and raised in Houston, Texas, his parents are divorced. I know that like, I don't usually, I wouldn't want to touch on this stuff, but it's like one of those prevalent themes that pops up throughout his movies all the time. I was just going to say, that's definitely affected his movies. Like, I'm sure I'll talk about this again in Royal Tenenbaums, but his, his father was in advertising and his mother was an archaeologist, just like the characters in the Royal Tenenbaums. That's very interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. He uh, wrote plays as a kid, and he used to make films with his two brothers uh, on an 8 millimeter camera. Then he went to uh, University of Texas in Austin, where he was a philosophy major, which doesn't shock me. Nor does the fact that he went to Austin for college. I feel like if you were to make, if you were to incar- like make a city a person, Wes Anderson is the Austin of people. <laughs> That's a... Uh... That's a very uh, specific kind of comparison, but I'm not disagreeing with it. That's all I really have for that stuff. But here, some of his heroes and influences, he said that shooting and staging, he was influenced by Roman Polanski. Hopefully that's all Roman Polanski influenced him. It's funny because I can almost see certain comparisons, mostly just in the visual cues. Uh, Lansky was, of course, a lot more serious, um, but I... No, but I got a... I feel like Rosemary's Baby definitely influenced him, if anything. Yeah, absolutely. Although, again, I hope Wes Anderson did not learn anything else from Rowan Polanski. His favorite director was Martin Scorsese. Now, Martin Scorsese was... Like, is a big Wes Anderson fan. I know. He named Bottle Rocket one of his 10 favorite films of the 90s. Yeah, I read that. And in 2007, Martin Scorsese named Wes Anderson the new Scorsese. (laughs) So he totally approves. So Scorsese approves. That's pretty cool. He's also a huge fan of the French New Wave. You know, Truffaut, Renoir, Godard. And that is like throughout all of his movies, the way in which those movies are shot. It's interesting because... He, his movies almost play like foreign films. Like, to a degree, he almost could be a completely, completely foreign filmmaker. He's just, and what I mean by that is that American cinema, despite how incredible some of it is, a lot of it has a very specific style that just feels American. 
and yep. foreign films just have a feel. And this, like, you, if you had told me he was from any other country, I think I would believe it. Because it's just, I can't explain the quiet, awkward, um, uh, drawn out kind of silences and then quirky moments and offbeat, like, strange humor. Um, it's just something, there's something that feels very foreign. And I think it completely works because it, it sticks with him in everything he does. It's, it's completely his style. I completely agree. There is something very um, foreign about him. I used, like, when I looked him up, I thought that it, he was foreign. Like, Fantastic Mr. <laughs> right. Fox, like, the way in which it was shot, again, I don't want to, like, understate it. It was just, like, so different that I was like, was this a foreign director? Like, You'd almost think it was, like, a Swedish film or something like that, or something just just unique, or some, a German or something. You know what I mean? Like, there's just something that has a quirky sensor that does not feel like American film. Well, we could talk about, like, the tropes that are within Wes Anderson movies in general, you know? And, and they start right from the beginning. And Because yeah. they start right from the beginning. You have the overhead shots. You have the central symmetry. You have um, quirky comedy, the bright colors. The snappy dialogue. The snappy it's dialogue. A, um, it's not the, necessarily in this movie, but there's, like, nostalgia I guess mm-hmm. there is a nostalgic feeling to this movie now. Um, there's comedic delivery of serious lines um, and serious delivery of comedic lines. Yeah. Um, it's a very, it's just offbeat and uh, and very intentionally so. Um, even the way they use violence is very, um, it's always, it feels like fumbling. It, he's never, he never draws out any moments the way a normal Hollywood director would. They would build music or something. And he's just, he's like a flat line, like of, of his style. I don't mean that in a bad way, but. Nah, so since we're already talking about it, let's get into Bottle Rocket. Let's talk let's about. Do the, uh, let's do the damn thing. Let's talk about uh, some pre-production. It was actually written by Owen Wilson and Wes Anderson. It was based on a short film that they made by the same title. And originally, Owen Wilson did not want to star in this movie. Oh, is that right? Yeah. He wanted to just be the writer. And they kind of coaxed him into acting in it. And I guess he fell I guess in love with acting because well, well, that's what we know say, him for. It's funny you say that because the first note I have I'm reading here says, um, after the movie bombed at the box office, Owen Wilson seriously considered joining, joining the, the Marines, Marines, convinced that acting held no future for him. And it's like, talk about just a bummer of just like, you know, making this kind of, not a, I don't know if you call it a passion project, but he wrote this film. They wrote a film together and they wrote a feature length version of it, you know, started it, everything. And then it just completely flops. And it's like, damn, well, what if I, what am I ta- What's it called? It gets even worse than that though, with uh, pre-production. Because well, just the reception in general hit harder because uh, Wes Anderson and Owen Wilson worked on the script for two years. Jeez, or maybe more. What happened was um, they made the short film and had written a script for a full feature film that uh, big producer Polly Platt found and loved. So she passed it on to James L. Brooks from The Simpsons. Yep. So he came to Texas to meet with the Wilsons and Wes Anderson, who were literally sharing an apartment down in Texas. Like, when he came over for a meeting, they literally met 
in this tiny ass apartment building that they were all like living in. It's like maybe a one or two bedroom apartment. Oh my God. And that's how they greet James L. Brooks. <laughs> and James L. Brooks said that um, what they have is good, but they need to work on the script. Because up until that point, apparently Wes Anderson and Owen Wilson had never actually read the script out loud. Like James L. Brooks took them to his hotel and said, we need to read this out loud and you'll see what I see. (laughs) So that's that's what they did. And they agreed. So James L. Brooks got them an office space in LA and they were paid a hundred dollars a day, 700 a week. Uh, and they were living it up because up until now they had not really even gotten any money because they were like right. little, they were literally just like poor college students. They just got out of college. They're poor. <laughs> They're just like living on scraps. And <laughs> here they are in LA living it up in a fucking office with a balcony flying for, and a flying secretary. First flying uh, first class. Yeah. Um, having never flown first class in his life, uh, Owen Wilson tried to exchange his prearranged first class plane ticket for a post ticket, hoping to pocket the difference in cash. When the airline told him the money would just go back to the credit card of who bought the ticket, he gave in and flew first class for the first time. Uh, oh, they say this on the making of the bottle rocket picture. Yeah, um, my guess is it's not his last time flying first class. I, uh, it's a, a fun fact I just have right here. This is also when Anthony shows uh, Dignan his sketchbook, this is the first time ever that Owen Wilson says, wow, on camera. <laughs> Which would literally wow. later become a meme. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Not just a meme. It's a... It like, I've seen part YouTube of videos. I've yeah. seen t-shirts of it. I've seen YouTube videos of Star Wars, uh, like lightsaber duels, and it's like every time the lightsabers hit, it's Owen Wilson going, Wow. <laughs> So it's literally duel of the fates and like every time the lightsabers clash oh wow 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 i both love and hate the internet at the exact same time it's really incredible me too um please but apparently please. uh luke wilson also came out to la but he was not given per diem he was not given a hundred dollars a day so he's literally <laughs> living in owen wilson's apartment going when is this movie gonna get fucking made i need to get paid <laughs> Oh, man. Uh, uh, To transition into the reception, Wes Anderson said that in an interview once, he never felt more confident while making Bottle Rocket, and he never felt less confident than when screening it. Um, It's very... Yeah, no, please continue your thought. No, I was just going to say, because it was hit hard by critics. Um, And... uh, the audience in general it screened in the santa monica amc to about 400 people and literally while the movie was playing chunks of people left and got they got them. cinema yeah. score cards back and it was like this film sucks this um, sucks i enjoy like, your your mocking voice of people who say opposing opinions this or, is stupid it's always yeah. some um, the film scored the worst test screening points in the history of Columbia Pictures at the time. That's um, crazy. Yeah, this movie uh, bombed at the box office too. It made uh, $500,000, $560,000 from a $5 million budget. 
Jeez. Um, but uh, a funny like ante- anecdote. Apparently, one of the cinema scorecards was like really meticulously written. Like the woman who wrote the card took her time, quoted the movie, like gave a detailed explanation about the movie and why she like thought it was not bad, but it wasn't good. Mm-hmm. And apparently, Wes Anderson like knew like saw this woman hand in the card and a few years later that woman went to another one of his screenings and approached him and said yeah sorry mr Anderson, you probably don't know me but i was actually at one of your first bottle rocket screenings and he said yes i know who you are is that right <laughs> is that a real story cre- and she was creeped out she was like what is this a bill murray story like one of the legends of bill murray you know is this like a if a it, fake, a story that may be fake, but it's too good to to question. I can't prove that it is real. I can only prove that Wes Anderson told the story. That's a great story. Like, um, that's funny. Go on. But while while we're on it, it's funny that this movie and its I should success or lack of rather um, didn't completely scare Wes Anderson out of Hollywood. But also, I think because he made a, another movie only a couple years after this. I think Rushmore was... Rushmore was 98, so three yes. years later. So he was literally just getting ready to jump on another movie. Um, but it's also, to me, it says a lot about how generations of people change uh, with the times when it comes to art and the media. Because it's like, I feel like it's not that strange for the first Wes Anderson film to kind of not do well with people because people, there had never really been quite anything like it. And I mean that in both in like, not in the best and worst sense, but like it's, it's, it's clear homage to like quirky indie films, but like indie films even were like really not what they were before this. You know what I mean? Like he kind of like perfected the hipster indie look that people weren't used to. So when you're watching giant Hollywood movies, you look at the 90s and you got action stars like Harrison Ford and Tom Cruise like really like in this huge spotlights and the big blockbuster names. And then here comes little Wes Anderson with Bottle Rocket. You should go ask audience. It's kind of like, it's very strange. I mean, I it's like... Columbia Pictures. You know what I mean? They were putting out big movies at the time. Yeah, there were a lot of indie movies in the 90s. Obviously, that's how Pulp Fiction came out. And, sure. Uh, you know, there's a lot. There's a big indie movement, Sex, Lies, and a Videotape. But mm-hmm. um, I feel like, how do I phrase this right? Like, Wes Anderson is kind of like wine. Like, he's yeah. like a fine red wine that, like, you know, when you first have red wine, you're like, this is garbage. Like, this is disgusting. And then by the time you hit the age of 25, you're like sucking down red wine going, this is some classy ass shit. You you're know? literally like eyes closed, bottle in the mouth, and you're just taking it all in and you're just swallowing and you don't care. Yeah, um, exactly. It's just you're taking it. So like, that's my assessment of Wes Anderson. He's kind of like wine. You start out not understanding the <laughs> great thing that's in front of you. But over time, you're like, this is some pretty good shit. Yeah. That's what, that's that's my whole that was, that's my whole point is it's kind of like it's almost strange at first like I can I, I'm not surprised like if if he started his career today I mean he also influenced a lot of filmmakers you could say but it's like if he He's came out Scorsese today, come on right uh, come on now but if I feel like today's audience would ex- way be way more willing to accept him right away because we've transformed 
an entire generation of, of what is not just hipster hipster films or indie films but like even like a24 and these low budget film like studios that are kind of like forcing the, this um vision of the low budget indie kind of look um that wes anderson was like an early pioneer for for his kind of generation of, of filmmakers i do want to make one final note Go for it. Uh, i didn't know this is apparently wes anderson such a good working rapport with his cinematographer robert d yellman yeah um that he has been anderson's cameraman on every single one of his subsequent films and the reason i mention that is because it's wes anderson's most defining trait is arguably his cinematography i agree but that's not where i thought you were going with the conversation no i i did not <laughs> No, I no. thought you were just going to say, like, if there's one defining characteristic of Wes Anderson, it's that he has the ability to work with the same people over and over again. But that is also true. He's clearly He clearly must be friendly and have good rapport, for using the word they used, um, with his cast and crew, because it literally just feels like the same people coming together. And that's part of what's really special about these movies. Yeah, that's part of the charm of his movies. Yeah. Although James Kahn is pissed that he hasn't gotten a phone call. <laughs> in the bottle rocket documentary that you noted uh yeah. james Kahn toward the end so essentially was like you know i did this guy a fucking favor and he hasn't called me since <laughs> honestly latter day james Kahn. uh obviously latter day i mean he's been latter day james Kahn since the 90s but it's like like <laughs> james like like elf james Kahn would kind of be perfect in one of wes's movies if he was able to just like harness the energy to keep it low enough that you can get the performances you need. Not unlike Gene Hackman in so you need something that's just enough of the actor to really just uh, handle that kind of quirky environment. Yeah. Uh, well, apparently Bill Murray was uh, approached for the James Caan role. Not surprised. And it's just like, I guess it didn't work out or something. But obviously James L. Brooks got the booking because he was had the clout where yeah. Wes Anderson and Owen Wilson obviously did not. I oh yeah, I they're mean, just I like literally. They James apparently, uh, Khan said that Brooks mentioned them to him and was like, "Yeah, I got these kids down in Texas making a movie." <laughs> like that's what they were <laughs> thought of back then. And James yeah, Khan I mean, literally filmed there for three days. It's it was oh, a three day commitment. That's outrageous. But with You're that, ready. let's. Um, let's dive into this. Let's dive into this thing. The films as Anthony Adams, Luke Wilson, looks out his window. Across the green field, crouching behind a bush with binoculars in one hand and reflecting a mirror's light in another is Deegan, Owen Wilson. The two nod to each other. As Anthony smiles and takes one last look in his room, cast sheets tied to his bed outside his window. It seems like this is an escape. I just, the... sorry. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just want to ask, do you find it weird, like, because he doesn't just do it in this movie, but do you find it weird that, like, the Wilson brothers are not actually brothers in the movies? Um, I, I've always found that strange anytime any director makes that choice because they look and talk very similarly. So it's That's why like... I uh, mention it, because, I mean, in Tenenbaums, it's, less noticeable i guess because like the headband and whatever they're wearing they're different you know, enough they're uh, different enough but in this movie i was looking at them and i'm like you guys look the same like you sat like 
why not just be brothers? And that I think that's why Owen Wilson didn't want to be in it because he probably knew people would have that thought. Um, but it's it's funny because I've seen this movie multiple times and when I watch it, I still forget the characters aren't supposed to be brothers. But that's my point. Just make yeah. them brothers. I don't <laughs> get it. <laughs> uh, it's an illusion. It's, it's it's not a trick. A trick is something a whore does for money. A trick is also... Uh, you know, that was Nolan's whole thing. No here. more magic here. Um, it seems like this is an escape. With a knock on the door, the plan is interrupted by Anthony's doctor. The doctor has come to say goodbye to Anthony. The escape plan is just a farce for Deegan. Anthony never told Deegan that the mental hospital was voluntary. Already, the seeds are planted that Anthony will do almost anything to placate Deegan's delusions of grandeur. With the doctor's permission, Anthony climbs out the window. While saying goodbye to his friends at the hospital, Anthony walks through. On a Literally bus. everyone on the lawn is like, bye guy, bye. <laughs> I will say in terms of, I, well, we can, I feel like we can only really compare to Nolan because it's not just what we have recorded, but it's just because it's the last director we dove into. Immediately with this film, it's like even the behaviors of characters being quirky and friendly with one another is so non-Nolan. Um, <laughs> And it's not a bad thing. It's just like, if you feel like, oh, I'm really getting something different here. The tone is just, from the beginning, it's like, oh, okay, this is going to be a little more chill. It literally starts with a bright red window. Like, it's already totally different. completely different color. We, we finally have color. Uh, we really have. It's been a while. It has been a while. Um, on the bus back to Dallas, Dignan pulls out his notebook. A Western trope that will continue to come back. I noticed that as well. The notebooks, I think, appear in, if not every single one of his movies, then most of them. There's always a notebook, a uh, record, a uh, book, just like a general, but it's always from the God's eye view. Um, just like we noticed, we noted the notable Nolan humor in following. Let us make the note of the notable notebook for Wes Anderson. The notebook with meticulous handwriting lays out a plan for Dignan and Anthony's next 75 years. The dichotomy laid out is very strange. While Anthony is the one who has just left the mental hospital, Dignan is the one who seems to need help. Very ironic and true. In that classic 90s indie filmmaking trope, the conversation between the characters continues as the location changes. I love that you call it a 90s indie filmmaking trope. Because that's absolutely accurate, and I love that trope. It, throughout this whole movie, they would just, like, talk. Like, the same conversation would carry from one location to the next. I can think of, um, I don't know, I feel like something like Little Rascals almost. Like, something where, uh, I don't know, like, I can hear, like, a child making, like, a, a great plan, and then it just, the kid's actually, like, pulling out a map. And it's funny that I even say that, because the West Indian's characters almost behave, the adults behave like children. Um, yeah, in the way that they plan things out and they map, even the way that they carry their backpacks, like it's like, and yeah, just the, he has a plan for the 70 next 75 years of their lives. That's like something a child does. Right. And I didn't, I did write down, not here, but like what all of the notebook said. And it was just like ridiculous, some of the stuff. I will say, and I'm a note of this while watching, is I feel like these behaviors are almost early indicators of like, um, the scouts in Moonrise Kingdom, it's that like it's almost like they're so astute. But then that that also that trait also goes. I use Moonrise Kingdom because it's mostly children, 
Um, but it's this trait that goes throughout all of his movies where the adult characters are kind of behaving in a way where like, it's like a kid playing fort. It's like um, kids playing, uh, like pretending to be military. You know what I mean? Like they have this operation plan and yet it's very, there's something very innocent about it, you know? Yeah. No, I get exactly what you're saying. Um, but that kind of leads into this next scene. The conversation between the characters continues as the location changes. Anthony and Dignan are now walking down the alleyways of a suburban area. Dignan is mad that Anthony does not consider him athletic. <laughs> Again, it's very not known. It's the way it's genuinely funny and, and quirky and awkward. Um, as they approach a house, Dignan hands Anthony gloves. They hop the fence and break in. Again, in a meticulous way, the men rummage through the items in the house. Dignan taking very selective items, Anthony not taking anything. Instead, he fixes the placement of a toy soldier. I just can't go, I can't help but go back to when you said this is like a lot like following, <laughs> bringing him to the house. They're literally on the like things meticulously. I don't know. It was very following. It was the um, scene specifically. But I will say this scene for me also was the first time it felt like later Wes Anderson tropes in the, the, the hard close-ups cutting between the very detailed objects or like the figurine, like, like center frame. Like it's kind of just these movements where not really anything is happening, but when you line up the shots, it's very- um, Absolutely. And Dignan uh, found the box. Right. <laughs> very following. Go on. Um, Anthony not taking anything, instead fixes the placement of a toy soldier. At a diner, they're complimenting each other on the robbery that they have just committed. It is at this point, Dignan drops Mr. Henry, whose name was all over the 75-year plan. Dignan tells Anthony that he will introduce him to Mr. Henry, quote-unquote, soon. Anthony is not happy, as he thought that robbing his own parents' home would warrant a meeting. School is out for the day. As all the kids flood out of the school, Anthony spots his sister Grace, Shay Fowler, talking to her friend. Grace, surprised to see her brother, plainly asks, aren't you supposed to be in Arizona? Grace's friend proceeds to ask if her brother is really a jet pilot. Anthony is clearly ashamed by Grace's shame. The, t the two now talk alone. Anthony said he went to the asylum because he was quote unquote exhausted. Grace <laughs> sharply retorts, you haven't worked a day in your life. How could you be exhausted? It also becomes clear that Grace knows and does not trust Dignan. Grace wants Anthony to come home, but he says he cannot because he is an adult. Indignant over Grace's persistent questions, Anthony ends the conversation, but hands Grace their mother's earring. Anthony got the earring back from Dignan. <laughs> I don't need to quote, I don't need to comment on that. We've already commented about the stealing of the earrings. I love it. While Anthony is talking to Grace, Dignan is in the car with Bob Maplethorpe, Robert Musgrave. Uh, just a fun quote about Robert Musgrave. Owen Wilson met him in a bar playing, like he played pool with him in a bar once. Oh, like, really? That's how they met. That's really funny. Yeah. Apparently Owen Wilson would uh, gamble with him and beat him often. Bob is trying desperately to join Dignan's team, asserting that he is a badass. He grows pot in his backyard. What a badass. Love Bob it. also notes that he is the only person with a car. Anthony gets into the car and is maddened by Grace's cynicism and the fact that she, that she thinks he is a failure. 
Dignan hysterically replies, failure? What has she ever done with her life that's so great? Note, he is saying this about a teenager. She's maybe like 12 years old and he's asking what she's done with her life. I love it. It's so good. Again, it's that dialogue that feels like it's adult, but it applies to children. It's just, it's very interesting. It's very funny. Dignan whips out a picture of Mr. Han- of Mr. Henry, claiming, quote, I learned more in that two months with Mr. Henry and his crew than I learned in 15 years of academic study. Fact, after Mr. Henry sees us pull this job, he's going to take a personal interest in our future. Bob attempts to cheer up Anthony, but ends up just complaining about his brother. At Bob's house, we are introduced to Bob's brother, future man, Andrew Wilson. There's always that third Hemsworth brother. <laughs> yeah, that's the third uh, Wilson I know. brother. That's the uh, the long lost, long lost Wilson brother. I love I it. There's always that third Hemsworth brother. That's a great analogy. Oh. Um, future man walks over to the pool and finds a single leaf floating on top. He then begins to go off on his brother. As the argument continues in the background, Stacy, one of Future Man's friends, talks to Anthony and Dignan. Stacy is sorority sisters to Anthony's ex-girlfriend and wants to know where Anthony has been. Anthony, about the fact that he has been in an asylum, proceeds to tell his story. One morning, over at Elizabeth's beach house, she asked me if I'd rather go water skiing or lay out. And I realized that not only did I not want to answer that question, but I never wanted to answer another water sports question or see any of these people again for the rest of my life. Three days later, I was on my way out to the desert, and that was that. All they say is that she thinks Anthony is complicated. <laughs> I don't know why I'm reading I'm thinking all Stacey can say is, wow. Wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> all Stacey can say is that she thinks Anthony is complicated. Abruptly and quickly, Anthony and Bob are shown to be buying guns. Back at Bob's house, Dignan is going over the plan for the upcoming robbery. As Dignan tries to lead the conversation, Bob is constantly playing with the new gun, and Anthony is consistently trying to tamper down Dignan's plan, which includes explosives. Pissed because he feels he is losing control, Dignan storms out. Anthony quickly calms Dignan down. The plan is back on. Yeah, that all happened very abruptly. Like, literally, they're buying the guns. They're having a meeting. Dignan walks out. He comes back. I'm like, this is this is a lot within five minutes. The plot moves quick. The plot thickens. The plot thickens. They're in Bob's car outside a bookstore, simply named Bookstore. Back when bookstores existed, of course. This is pre-Amazon days. <laughs> They are making the last-minute preparations as Dignan puts tape over his nose. When Bob asks why Dignan is doing so, he simply responds, exactly. The heist is on. Anthony goes up to the bookstore door and gets the attention of, the, of a staff member. Anthony claims that he left a sweater in the store. As the employee lets Anthony in, Dignan races forward saying, I left some money in here, in the register. I uh, love it. Dignan pulls out his gun. He takes the employee to the back office with the manager. Anthony looks for any more employees to tie up any loose ends. In the office, Dignan shouts the manager for the money. The manager bites back, saying not to call him an idiot. Dignan. <laughs> Dignan I'm sorry. Him, yeah. That was that to me is I think one of the funniest moments of this movie because it's at first it's so unexpected. Um 
And I love this idea that he like has to pull, he still wants to rob them, but he has to like, he pretends to be polite. The funny part isn't necessarily that he says, don't call me idiot. The funny part right. is that Owen Wilson then replies to him, oh, okay, sir, I'm sorry. Get one of those facts. A bigger one, you idiot, what do you think? Don't call me an idiot, you punk. Do you, have a, do you have a bigger bags for atlases or dictionaries, uh, sir? <laughs> it's just, it's very, like, um... Please give me very, the money. Like, it's very gets... dry humor. Like, no one is gets too serious. And he, he interjects. He's like, don't call me idiot. It almost has that moment where he pauses. He's like, okay, like, I'm sorry. Like, and yet he's, he doesn't actually back down. Yeah, um, like, he's literally like, okay, sir, please give me the money. Like, it's, it's a very comical moment. I made a note of it. Uh, they got the money and flee. They're all jubilant. Dignan says that Mr. Henry will definitely be impressed. It is at this point that Anthony learns that the photo of Mr. Henry is Dignan part of the landscaping crew. What's more, Mr. Henry fired Dignan, but never won to back down. Dignan says that the landscapers were excellent thieves. They were excellent thieves. <laughs> They stop to buy fireworks for some reason, which Dignan fires out Bob's car as they drive. Like That's an iconic shot of the movie. Iconic and dangerous. Come yep. on. As they drive, Anthony suggests that Dignan's 75-year plan is already not working. Maybe they should just go back home. <laughs> but alas, instead they go to a cramped Mattel. I don't know why I said it like George Singer. Mattel. Mattel. <laughs> They go to a hotel. It's fabulous. It's, it's fabulous. Instead, instead, they go to a cramped motel. Anthony does not stay in the room long, going to the pool. From the pool, Anthony notices a housekeeper. Awkwardly, they, they wave to one another. Dignan then shouts from the room down to Anthony in the pool. Dignan wants Anthony to get a hair, or at least dye his hair. Anthony refuses. As Dean well, and say that Dignan is wrong on that one. Like, come on. Right. <laughs> We're on the lamb. You may as well fucking change your hair. Come on. Come on. You got you to play ball here, dude. As, as Dignan and Bob are at the barber, Anthony introduces himself to the housekeeper, Inez. Lumi Cavazos? Sure. You think of being Puerto Rican in my DNA, I would know it. Cavazos. 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 <laughs> That's how a true Spaniard would say it. While there is a language barrier, the chemistry is palpable. Anthony follows Inez as she cleans multiple rooms, though he doesn't offer to help much. Ultimately, they end up in the laundry room as Inez attempts to read Anthony. As Inez attempts to read, Anthony looks at her locket. Inside the locket is a picture of Inez's sister, which she gives to Anthony. For what reason? I don't know. Like, he literally is like, can I have this? And she's like, this priceless picture of my sister, probably the only one I have? Sure. I kind of also feel like um, uh, this is a, it's that um, awkward kind of, I don't even know if you want to call it humor, but it's just a very, it's a, it's kind of like supposed to be like a, maybe a, a sentimental moment or maybe something genuine or touching and it comes off kind of like strange it, i understand what it's supposed to be like you said i feel like it was supposed to be like a sentimental kind of thing right but it came across just as very like aggressive it felt like 
I mean, maybe this is my 2020 post-George Floyd goggles on, but it felt like the white man taking what he wanted from the immigrant, you know? Um, I, I, I mean, I, can't, I see where you're coming from. I didn't see it that way, but I also get what you're saying. Um, I think what it is is that even, because like, his filmmaking, Wes Anderson's filmmaking qualities only uh, improve from here. So I feel like he kind of embraces moments like these where he makes serious um uh, serious moments more awkward like i almost feel like it's intentional but it doesn't feel as intentional this time so maybe it's almost something he develops from here you know what i mean yeah i don't know it, um, it was just weird yeah <laughs> but go on. at the barbershop bob learns that his brother future man was arrested for the pot growing in the yard bob immediately wants to go back to hell uh of course marijuana is not legal so you can't be growing pot in the backyard nope not legal in uh, Texas. Bob and Dignan walk into the motel room to find a fiesta is happening. At first, they are unsure they have the right room, but from the bathroom, Anthony emerges with frozen margaritas. I Dignan, hope he didn't make that with toilet water. <laughs> Dignan quickly joins the party, but Bob shouts for Anthony's attention. Bob explains that he needs to go back to his brother. Dignan does not think that is a good idea. Anthony, as always, is somewhere in the middle. Anthony thinks it would be more prudent to wait 48 hours, make call, see what is going on. They seemingly agree. Anthony is back in the pool this time with Inez. They kiss. Within a few seconds, Dignan interrupts with a bad joke about the lifeguard not being back until morning. Yeah, what a cock block. <laughs> it's terrible. They probably could have would have banged <laughs> in that pool, though, so maybe it was for the best because that was... Absolutely. That's definitely where it was going. That's uh, not very COVID-friendly. No. No, it is not. In a classic Wes Anderson center overhead extreme close-up, Bob uh, is shown quietly taking his car keys. It's like one of those shots that's literally right on top of... Uh... He loves those. Yeah, he does. He does them so well. When Dignan sees the car is gone, he's livid. Anthony's thrilled. He can spend more time with Inez. In a scene reminiscent of The Graduate, Anthony runs to Inez. They have sex in a hotel in a motel room. Hopefully she cleaned the room after. Not very COVID-friendly. Not COVID-friendly at all. Later that night, Anthony, Dignan, and Inez go to a bar. In the bar, the foreground is Anthony and Inez awkwardly sitting on the bench. In the background, Dignan is playing pool, which it was a really good depth of field shot. I like that a lot. He one I mean I, we didn't I didn't mention it before but one of his influences is of course Orson Welles who is known for the what's the it depth called? of field the depth of field yeah that's what Citizen Kane is known for the fact that someone in the foreground and the background are both in focus a man then approaches Inez and begins to make small talk with her Anthony is immediately jealous the time at the bar does not last long as Dignan begins to get beat up presumably for cheating at pool stuff back at the motel room dignan is icing his eye anthony is still talking to himself about how rude it was for that man to approach inez this guy just like wouldn't let it go he's like just talking about how rude this guy was for talking to someone like you don't own her however um, yeah the imagery of him talking about this man who walked up and said a couple sentences while Owen Wilson's just laying in the bed and he's just got blood all over him. Um, the juxtaposition of that is like pretty funny because it's like 
I don't know, it's like, it's just really funny because you think like, it would be drawn to this serious moment, like, oh my God, you're so hurt, whatever. And yet like he was sitting there going on about this one moment with this girl who he just briefly, you know, he's only just recently met and got together with. Yeah. Um, but just the imagery of that is, I just think it's funny. Well, you know, and we can jump ahead a little here. We'll talk about it uh, more later, but Dignan has a point when he calls out Anthony and as like, you're selfish. Oh, absolutely. You're a selfish motherfucker. I'm bleeding behind you. And all you're doing is sitting there talking about your, the woman that you just met, like what, two days ago, talking to some guy for two seconds. Like, yeah, yeah. That you were at a bar and he said, hello, get the fuck over yourself. I'm bleeding here. (laughs) And the way it plays is just very, I know it plays into his character. Like you're saying, it's just, it's a very funny, just visually. It's a funny thing to watch, you know, it's just a, no, it is funny. It's just also like poignant because when you it first does. watch it, when you first watch it, you're kind of like, you know, you're on Anthony's side. You're just, maybe not on his side, but your main focus is on Anthony because you think Dignan is kind of this like goofball. So when he's in the background bleeding, you don't really care. But then when you when Dignan calls Anthony out later on, you're just like, wow, I didn't look at this from his perspective at all. Like he right. was literally hurt, and we yeah. didn't even bat and I because we cared more about Inez and Anthony. Well, they play it out like in the classic trope that like they're the, those two are sent with centerpiece because it's guy meets girl, yada, yada, yada. But then you realize that's not really what this movie's all about. However, they come to the conclusion, it is time to leave town. But first they need a car. Dignan wants to use Inez's master key. Anthony refuses. Dignan will have to hotwire a car instead. Anthony pulls Inez to the side with another motel worker to translate. A busboy, I didn't catch his name, but he's there to translate. Anthony wants Inez to come with him. Inez says she can't. The next morning, Dignan finds Inez on Anthony's behalf. Dignan hands Inez an envelope. Using the same translator as the night before, Inez has the man translate to Dignan. Tell Anthony I love him. Confused, Dignan agrees to tell Anthony. Um, that was honestly like, you wonder at that moment, will Anthony think that Dignan is just an asshole? Because you know that that information is going to come out and you think like, oh, Anthony's going to be pissed later. But the way it plays is just so funny that you're like, you can't even blame Dignan for not telling Anthony. Right. Um, and I And I enjoy the way that that scene was done, I thought it was very tasteful. Cause like, I, I really just, I'm so desensitized by movies. I don't buy into a lot of romantic tropes, but I liked that he used the translator and they didn't go with just subtitles or whatever. Like the fact that it was very genuine, it was very real. Um, and yet, like you said, it's funny, it's quirky. It's, um, yeah. it's un- it, you know, it's got that uncomfortable kind of uh, uh, humor to it, but it just feels, it just feels genuine. You're just like, this is a colossal misunderstanding in Absolutely. the funniest, in classic comedy way. Think back to like old school comedies and like, right. where does the comedy come from? It comes from misunderstanding. Absolutely. It's really, yeah. But you it's, said about buying into this relationship. I don't really buy into it. She loves him after two days. Come on. Well, no, I don't. It's not that I buy into the relationship, but it's, 
the the interactions and the dialogue and the way it's done never feels corny to me. It never feels sappy. It never feels like it's like yeah, it is sure. with a lot of other romantic comedy tropes. I mean, yeah, her falling in love with him in two days is like in the terminal when uh, uh what's Catherine his name? Zeta Jones and Tom Hanks. Um, oh no, it's uh, the guy's in love with um, what's her name from Guardians of the Galaxies? Uh, uh, Zoe Saldana. Yeah, she's like working as. Um, I don't know how familiar you are. Bookstore clerk. Yeah, she's like working at the airport, and this guy who's like seen the movie in years. I'm just but filling in the they, blanks from what you're saying. They don't have. Right, this is why this is good. This, we have. This is what I really part of where our relationship exists to fill in. You know what I mean? And yeah. this. Uh, basically, he's never even met her. He's afraid to talk to her, but he's in love with her. I think and I then, like, this. And as soon as he meets her, he proposes to her, and she, she says yes, and they get married. <laughs> Yeah, I remember that. And you're like, it's a very jarring moment where it's supposed to be like playing to this romantic cliche, and I'm less like, I don't really, I can't, I refuse to buy into. I think how the storyline plays out. They kind of sh- like in community. Sometimes there's like Abed in the background, just like having his own adventure. Yeah, I feel like in that movie there was like a background adventure with Zoe Saldana going out with this guy. Oh, but absolutely. I could be wrong. I don't remember. I, it's been it's been a minute and we're we're not quite at Spielberg yet. <laughs> no, and Terminal is very very far away. Uh, let's get back into it. Confused, Dignan agrees to tell Anthony. Dignan hot wires a car, but it does not get them very far. Defeated by his breakup, Bob's abandonment, Mister Henry's exile, and the car breaking down, and Dignan's lack of control, <laughs> Anthony wants to call the operation quits. Dignan hits back, saying they still robbed a place and they still have the money. It is then that Anthony tells Dignan all the money went to Inez. Furious, Dignan shouts, you don't give a $500 tip to a housekeeper. That I cannot forgive. What were you thinking? That's what he can't forgive, that he gave her a $500 tip. It's it's so funny how petty, whether, whether right or wrong, how like petty the characters come across in their dialogue sometimes. Like, that's just how it feels. Uh, and it also makes me question Inez and Anthony's relationship. If you meet someone for two days, okay, you have sex with them, and they leave and give you $500, what does that imply? Come on now. What else is it going to be? I just feel like that's very yes. prostitute, like, implicit to prostitution. She's clearly a prostitute. You know, she clearly hits up the clubs at night. You know her type. She plays as the maid, housekeeper. She's sweet. She doesn't speak English. Listen, this is one of her tricks. Uh, you know, her trick is something a whore does for money. It's just uh, an identity. There you go. You're bringing it full circle now. I think that you've really hit the nail on the head. <clears throat> anyway, that he cannot forgive. The hammer is then dropped when Dignan says that Inez never loved Anthony. Dignan also says Anthony is extremely selfish, which we talked about. Dignan mm-hmm. punches Anthony in the face. They literally go their separate ways. I was giving a lot of shit to Anthony, but Dignan is also no prize at all either. You know, it wouldn't shock me that the reason Anthony went to the mental hospital was because Dignan just exhausted him. Right. Dignan is an exhausting human being. He literally is showing you a 75-year plan of your future life. That's very overbearing. That's a lot. I want to save some of this for final thoughts, but, like, it's very interesting because show how both of these guys 
are very flawed in their own ways of just being human. Um, it's arguably a trait that it's not that it's not, I can, it's really over. We can have to go off of right now, but it's, it's not that it's unlike Nolan. Um, <laughs> like Nolan's characters are human, but they're also dr uh, dramatized for Hollywood. They're, you know what I mean? Like, whereas mm -hmm. these guys being human means like you're lying about or, or being, uh, selfish about your behaviors based on a fling you're currently having for a couple of days or you're mapping out a plan that is you know outrageous and way too ambitious you know what I mean and so these characters like you almost don't know who you're rooting for and that's I think that's kind of the point here is like you side with one you side with the other the film is leading you in a romantic relationship and then it's leading you in another relationship and then you realize that both of these characters are kind of in their own wrong but they both have good intentions. It feels very, they feel very flawed in a human way, which is something I think we have yet to experience kind of in this light. I don't mean to, this isn't a bash on Nolan because obviously he's great at what he does, but a lot of the times Nolan's characters are driven by plot where in this movie, I just laid out multiple monologues about how the characters are driving the plot in here, not the plot driving the character, which is what exactly. happens in a lot of Nolan movies. Absolutely. That's a great way of putting it. Yeah. That affects exactly how the chemistry plays, but I digress. It has been six months since the Dignan and Anthony split up. Anthony is now living with Bob. Together they work three jobs as paper boys, construction workers, and valets. One morning on Anthony's jog, Dignan jumps him. Dignan apologizes for what went down when they last saw one another. Dignan is back in the good graces of Mr. Henry, and Anthony will finally get to meet him. And finally, we meet Mr. Henry, the one and only James Caan. Sonny Corleone. <laughs> Sonny himself. Uh, he is exactly the smooth, vulgar man that Dignan would be infatuated with. In Mr. Henry's warehouse, uh, with all white walls, Dignan tells Anthony about the next heist that is going to be pulled. They will be robbing Hinkley Cold Storage. Some of the key ingredients for this heist involve dynamite, pole vaulting, laughing gas, choppers, and hang gliding. It's very um, elaborate. It feels very fantastic, Mr. Fox, in like uh, you got your old gadgets and plans and your, uh, it's, I don't know, it's, it's good. I agree. Um, there's a lot of early tropes here in that, like in revisiting this. Uh, that you can see later on. It's cool. It's cool to see it so early on. While interested, Anthony does not immediately agree to join. It is not until some subtle manipulation from Mr. Henry that Anthony is convinced to join. Dignan shows up at Bob's house in a bright yellow jumpsuit on a dirt bike to get an official yes or no from Anthony. Anthony agrees under two conditions. Bob is on the team and he can't have a jumpsuit as well. Um, that's good, notable uh, Anderson humor. <laughs> I want to, yeah. Who doesn't want a bright yellow jumpsuit? Um, and I do love that James Conn's entrance, entrance, he has a his teeth on his necklace. His what? Um, <laughs> it looks like shark teeth, like hanging from this necklace. It's outrageous. He's a, I mean, he has a very, very small part, but he's good at what he does. You know? he's, just, he's just a character. Dignan is ecstatic. Although Dignan has not forgiven Bob for his abandonment. After Bob punches Dignan in the face, the two hug it out. The beef has been squashed. The slate is wiped clean. The hatchet has been buried. 
<laughs> all of the <laughs> all of the metaphors. Oh my god. So good. To celebrate the new team goes to a country club that Bob's parents belong to for a nice meal. It seems a small point, but it is large. Bob's family is very rich. They belong to a country club and are vacationing in Europe for months at a time. While there, Mr. Henry puts Future Man in his place, telling him that he will die alone, followed by doing some karate on Future Man's arm. Tough stuff for my god, Future Man. Tough stuff for Future Man. Before the heist can go down, Anthony and Dignan are staking out Hinkley Cold Storage facility. While Dignan is watching the building with his binoculars, Anthony is drawing a flip book. Because why not? The topic quickly changes to Inez. Dignan says he likes Inez, but thought the busboy was a bit odd, noting that the busboy said he loved Anthony. Anthony catches on quickly and realizes that he was simply translating for Inez. She, not he, was the one who loves Anthony. Mr. Henry is throwing a party at, the where, at his warehouse to celebrate the upcoming heist. The entire time, Anthony is calling the motel looking for Inez, literally calling every room in the hotel. Finally, he tracks her down in the laundry room. Her English has improved exponentially. She confirms that she still loves Anthony. He's exuberant, cheering and dancing in the middle of the party. All the while, Dignan is talking to Mr. Henry. Dignan wants to try to lead the heist by himself, and Mr. Henry agrees. I will say, this is a little, just I have to, while you were reading, I had the scene playing, and the scene of him of calling on the phones is almost reminiscent of in Grand Budapest when they're all, all the hotels are calling each other. Yes. Yes. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like, it's a very, there's like a running, of, there's like a running thing going on. Um, and there's this, this goal, but you got through all these connections first. And it's always ca- characters doing something. Um, oh, that's good. I didn't catch and, that. And just looking at it, like the imagery is immediately coming back. I think that's uh, incredible. Um, with a crashing sound and the tickings of a clock, the tone shifts from the party to the heist. It is a dream. DiCaprio enters the scene and Joseph Levin behind him. Tom Hardy's in the distance. The two worlds have collided. This is actually a crossover. <laughs> that would be good. Like that ticking clock, man. That would have been uh, good. <laughs> the tickings of a clock with the with a crashing sound and the tickings of a clock, the tone shifts from the party to the height. Anthony is in his jumpsuit on the roof of a building, keeping lookout. Dignan, with his walkie-talkie, is in total control. He is walking into Hinkley's cold storage with Kumar, Kumar Palana, and Applejack, Jim Pond. Bob is on the lookout on the ground. The plan quickly unravels. Kumar does not seem to know who Applejack is. Anthony and Bob want to bail out. As Dignan and Kumar approach the safe in the office, three employees come out of the freezer. Dignan is taken aback, saying, you're always at lunch now. Dignan holds them by gunpoint. Kumar cannot get the safe open. Bob and Anthony leave their posts and join Dignan. Dignan panicking shouts at everyone to put on their masks. Just like Texas late to the idea of masks. I was going to say another COVID friendly uh, between a yellow jumpsuit which looks a little bit like a hazmat suit. Nah, my joke is just like, you know, after all the shit has hit the fan, that's when they decide to finally wear the fucking mask. Dignan also sets off a smoke screen 
which sets off the fire alarm. With that, the team scrambles to get back into the car. Dignan and Anthony make it to the car, but do not have the keys. Bob tells them that Applejack has the keys, but is having a heart attack on the elevator. <laughs> Rough stuff for my guy Applejack. Rough stuff for my, for my guy Applejack. <laughs> Anthony wants to flee and implores Dignan to do the same. But Indignan Dignan says he will never be caught. Runs into the building to get Applejack. And How Anthony about that wordplay? <laughs> I was just going to say. Anthony runs from the scene. As Dignan runs from the facility with Applejack, the cops show up. Dignan now tries to run, but the cops catch him and beat him into submission. Um, yeah, that was some uh, real police brutality there. Like, you got him. You get, you know, you don't have to beat the shit out of him, too. I will say the scene is very, it's a little reminiscent of Grand Budapest when they're going through, it was called the sewer hole, right? Of Harvey, Harvey, of Harvey Keitel popping out of the sewer hole very comically than he does. Um, but anywho, um, Dignan now tries to run, but the cops catch him and beat him into submission. All the while, the real heist is happening. Mr. Henry at Bob's house is stealing everything. What a twist. What a twist. It was like a weird twist, because like, you, and maybe it's because we didn't get enough time with Mr. Henry, but like, I just didn't see that coming. I was like, what? I'll save this for the final thoughts, the in-depth, but there's a lot this movie does that, there's a lot this movie tries to cram in not a lot, but there's the movie tries to cram a a, a deal of plots that are happening that are not yeah, all of them are are. We'll, we'll save it for the final thoughts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. An unspecified amount of time has passed. Anthony and Bob are visiting Dignan in prison. Dignan seems to be in good spirits. He told the DA that he has CRS disease, can't remember shit. Dignan wants to know why Mr. Henry hasn't visited him. Anthony and Bob drop the axe that Mr. Henry robbed Bob's house. Not all is bad. Bob and Future Man have gotten closer. Quote, just because you're a fuck up doesn't mean you're not my brother. Some, some real heartwarming stuff there. <laughs> I wonder if one of the Wilsons wrote that to the other. I was going to say, they had to have. Dignan then goes, uh, Dignan then gives his friends belt buckles that he made. As the visit comes to a close, Dignant loud whispers an elaborate escape plan, but it was just a joke. The film closes as Dignant walks in line with the rest of the prisoners back inside. It fades away. The end. It's done. It's um... Well, I guess I can give my uh, final thoughts first. Absolutely. Like, uh, just to literally go off of what you said, quick, clean, and fun. I'll say that it was fun, but I don't know if it's necessarily clean. You were touching on this a minute ago. It's just this movie, don't get me wrong. I don't think it sucks by any means. I wouldn't have filled out one of those cinema score cards with this sucks because I don't think it sucks no, at no. all. There's no, a lot yeah, of nuance yeah, characters it. and all that stuff. But like you just said a couple minutes ago, this movie tries to juggle way too many balls. It, you know, you're dealing with a heist thing. You're dealing with Mr. Henry. Then there's a love story thrown in. Then there's like... Uh, you know, there's just a lot thrown into this movie. And I don't think that it all works because not you, you don't get enough time to breathe in each one of the things. You know, the love story got very compressed. It, within two days, you're telling me these people love each other and she still loves him a few months late. Look, what is it, like six or seven months later? Like, that just seems odd to me. 
been the Mr. Henry thing. It's just very compressed. I know James Conn only shot three days, but you could have had more with him in total. We didn't get to know him. When his plan at the end is revealed, you're kind of like, that's smart. But like, this literally came out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. So again, I don't think it's a bad movie by any mm-hmm. stretch of the imagination. Again, I love the dynamic between the characters. I think they're interesting characters. I right. just think that it's a little all over the place, which sometimes his movies do that. A lot of his movies tackle a lot. Yeah. But this one just doesn't have it. This is definitely because it's his first movie, but it doesn't have the ability to be concise in what it's trying to say with its mm-hmm. specific characters. So the all over the place um, nature doesn't work. Well, in a sense, I was going to say it could just do a segue into like what I'm saying, what I'm with my thoughts is that, um, but even to go off what you're saying in terms of the film trying to juggle a lot, which is what I was initially trying to say, is that it's interesting that he would later be able to juggle not just as many plots, but as many timelines, characters, uh, and events and all that happening as well as he does in something like Grand Budapest, which is arguably his most packed out movie, and yet that's arguably one of his best movies. So it's just funny that this is something he's been wanting to do all along is he's been wanting to take the, a very simple story and, and complicate things usually works in his favor. He, him complicating plots is something he's learned to do very, very well because he always finds a way to bring it full circle or um, uh, kind of bring his point back to whatever it is he was trying to say. And I think because this was his first movie he was kind of like finding his footing. I think like you said, like it's not bad, but like having seen what he did, what he does later, you can't help but just um, see the early signs of the filmmaker who has not yet found his, his niche. It's not, he's still kind of finding his tropes. And I think that's what's really fun about this movie is I look at it and I go like, sure, it's, it does a lot. Sometimes it doesn't always work. Um, I don't really know what the, I, the purposes other than the relationship between the two characters, I guess in the end, that's really all it is. Cause the love story, like you said, James Caan and all the other characters in the plots, it's all really kind of irrelevant is, is, but I guess that's his whole point. And it's really just about what did these two guys want? What was their relationship? And I guess that's really what drives it. Like you said about the characters driving. The plot. I feel like, I don't know, just thinking about it now while you're talking, I just feel like it started with Anthony in an insane asylum and it ends with Dignan in a prison. I I don't know. The symbiotic nature of it is still very Wes Anderson. Yeah, and Uh, it's very, it's it's very, it's it's not only a little somber or sad, but it's very poignant to to begin and end the film that way, you know? Um, So clearly, like, the bookend aspect of it is, is... is wonderful and that's something that he's done really well in his movies is tying up his movies from beginning to finish of like he, he, watching his movies feels almost like reading a book it's like there's a there's a clear beginning and there's a clear ending like no more ambiguous endings <laughs> we're right. free, we're is, free. He, yeah we really i mean it's really cut and it's cut and dry it's really like sure you can take away a lot because you just witnessed whatever very uh, intricate quirky dialogue or very unique characters but really, like, his movies, and right from the beginning, they just play out like reading a little book, you know what I mean? It's just, and in Grand Budapest, it literally starts with a book, and it's just very, it, it's kind of, he becomes more meta in that sense. Um, but I look at this more as, like, almost like following or 
for other people memento where it's like there are so many early signs of what the director would later do that i look at it as just like a movie to really appreciate to really just you know sure it's not his best it's not you know it but it's also very um intriguing because it sets the bar for everything else it's, it's also it's very rare that anyone's first movie is anyone's favorite maybe right. spielberg with jaws but like that's even debatable with well a lot of yeah because it, it well it depends even if you call uh i mean i guess that's his first theatrical movie i mean duel is some people even consider his first movie but well that was a tv big. movie but right i mean do i care for it sure first big but for your first big release that's like yeah. Yeah. it's not just the first big release. It was for his first theatrical release. Like I said, right. Duel was still a TV movie. Right. So to like literally start big is like that, you know, or even here's an indisputable one. Orson Welles was Citizen Kane. That was his first movie. Like right that's out of the wild. floodgates. Boom. That's and wild. That, like, could you imagine that's your first fucking movie? That's it. He might as well have just tapped out right then and there. I know he did. It went on to do other great things, but that's a big accomplishment. He, but, um, he was always crippled by Citizen Kane, though, and the fear that nothing he would ever make would be as good. And let's be real, most of what he made was not. You know, I I'm love actually, F is for fake, but it's not as good of a film as Citizen Kane. Um, and I'm not, I'm not nearly familiar with all of his work. I've seen a few of his movies, but I've not seen all of them. So just, just to wrap my thoughts on on this movie is that it's more of yeah, you can't help but see where it's flawed, but like, it's fun to see where it sets the bar for the creator's um, tone and his tropes. And like I said, with Nolan, is like he created an identity for himself in his movies. He created a look and a feel and a style that's very him. And Wes Anderson does it right from the beginning. I mean, I, he's his intricate details are not as refined as even, I think as Rushmore, it's definitely Tenenbaums where you feel it a lot where he is framing things in such a meticulous way. But even the way he moves his cameras, I mean, he has the little overhead shots and he has the up-close snippets of things that are just uh, there to be quirky or fun. Um, those are all existent in Bottle Rockets. So for me, it's almost like looking at a... It's like, an early, it's like being in a museum and looking at an, a very early work of a renowned artist. Do you know what I mean? That's how this feels. It's like peering in at something that's admirable. Um, no, and so I good. appreciate it. That's good. But, so yeah. uh, I think that ends our conversation on Bottle Rocket. Do you want to yeah. give uh, your pick of the week? Um, it's back. I do. It's it's back. The pick of the week is back. It's back. Um, I am going to go with Some Like It Hot. Wow. Wow. So, Sorry. I'm taking it back because it's just been horror until now. So horror was a horror thriller, COVID friendly. Um, paranoia was like what I was picking for Nolan. Um, going in I, a totally different directions. I see this. I'm thrown. Go on. Flabber, flabbergasted. See if I'm if I'm if I'm not surprising you, I'm not surprising anyone. I got to keep you on your toes. So this is this is good. We have to keep challenging each other. Or everyone's going to be falling asleep. So um, I don't have a reason for picking it. I just looked at it earlier and I was like, you know what? Characters deviously. Um, making plots to cause mischief and, and fool other people. Like, sure, they're, the films aren't incredibly similar, but I don't know. I just like that idea of characters in disguise and being mysterious and it playing out in a funny way. Um, Some Like It Hot does that brilliantly, and the 
it's one of the few movies I've seen uh, pre 1970s, and this is just Billy Wilder. It's like it's it's done with such a style that like, yes, of course, it's a little old fashioned or outdated, but it's like it hits in such a way that like it almost could have been written or played out today. Like because it, it, what I mean is it's just it's incredibly ahead of its time. So oh, for a movie to come out in its fifty in the fifties and just seeing not just the men dressing as women, which is hilarious, but just the way not the way it's uh, the dialogue is, the way the jokes hit, um, everything about it is just uh, it's very unique for its time. And you know, you always got to mention that final line. Well, nobody's <laughs> perfect. Nobody's perfect. It's a great. It's a great way to end the movie. It's incredible. Um, and it's one of the only movies I'm familiar with, with uh, starring Marilyn Monroe. I've seen her in other stuff, but that's the one that stands out the most. Yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. Uh, for my pick of the week, I'm going to go with The Godfather Part 2. It was my pick of my Godfather Part 1 was my pick of the week. The first episode of following, uh, the first episode we did. So this week, I'm going to do the second part because... Here we are in our second part of our uh, podcast. I, I, I love like, where your head's at, Stephen. That's wonderful. Keep going. The Godfather no, Part Two. I. Uh, it's three hours and like I don't know, forty minutes long. It's like three forty-five. Every second is worth it. But that's what I was about to say. But literally every second <laughs> is just like worth it. The acting, the directing, just the story. It, I. I get into a lot of arguments because I honestly think that it may be better than the first one. I was going to say it arguably set the bar in cinema as to being a debatable sequel that's better than the original, or if not on par. I'm sure we'll discuss it eventually, but I think that The Godfather 1 is a more fun film, but I think that The Godfather Part 2 is a better made film. Uh, I think that's a... ah. I don't know. I I would not that that's up for debate. Both are so good, but both are also very different, and both they are structured differently. A Godfather's iconic because it's the Godfather. You know what I mean? It's become more of a name than a movie itself to a lot of people. Everyone knows the name, even if they haven't seen it. Obviously, the Godfather is all, and the Godfather Part Two are closer, but in in terms of rank. But like Batman Begins versus The Dark Knight, what you what uh, Francis Ford Coppola did with The Godfather Part Two was he took the world that he established and he turned the movie into a complete epic, taking you to Italy for longer periods of time and through time, you know, taking you back to old New York. Like, he made it a story throughout the ages and it just hits home. And It's very, you know, yeah. Even today, it's still very poignant. They're talking about very poignant issues of immigration, uh, abortion they're talking about you know just a lot of stuff that has to do with today even though it took place in the 1960s and the 1920s you know, um i don't think i have to sell anyone on seeing the godfather part two uh, i like the idea of mirroring our shows and just like uh you know next segment picking godfather three because you feel like you have to even though a no, lot of people no, would say no. you shouldn't recommend it but hey you know do whatever you want man i might i don't know i well, I'll, you know, I'll save it for the next time. Uh, we have done. I'll save it for um, when we get to uh, our next director well, topic or, or whatever we franchise do. Franchise or whatever. So, everyone, that was uh, another episode of Whose <laughs> Filmography Is It Anyway? Uh, 
We look forward to seeing you on the next episode where we will cover Rushmore. As always, you can find me on Instagram at Mr. Fillmore. And As always, you can find Steven on Instagram at Mr. Fillmore. Still we, no, uh, we will have a page up. God damn it. We have, we're, we have a show. We're on our second segment. We are going to make this page. All right? We are adults. We are men. We are we, anchor men. And it's anchor man, not anchor lady. And that is a scientific <laughs> fact. Um, R.I.P. Fred Willard. I don't know if we sit on there. We've said too much, but I really like where you're going. I'm trailing off too much. Please wrap it up. This is great. I think that's all that needs to be said. We'll see you next time. Thank you.